This is a special edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we honor Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fall up. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. One of his biggest hits from 1978, Kenny Rogers with The Gambler. Christopher? Tom, I'm here in Southern California at home and doing what most people are doing at this time. Um, reading cooking, catching up on my Netflix shows, <laughs> walking Leo the Schnauzer, oh. in my case doing some songwriting, uh, and now returning to the FLW microphone, unfortunately for a sad reason. For sure. But let's get going with the show. Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic, and this is a special edition of the show to acknowledge the passing of Kenny Rogers at the age of 81. Tom, this guy had... A remarkable career, and I know that you're a big fan of his. Um, it started in the late 1950s, back in the folk boom that included bands like mm, the New Christy Minstrels, from which Kenny Rogers got his start, um, Rooftop Singers, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Ian and Sylvia, people like that. Um, and he stopped performing a few years later in 2018. Stylistically, the guy was all over the map, in a good way. He sang doo-wop, folk, psychedelic, country, pop. He even performed with Fish on stage in 2012. <laughs> Here's a quote from Kenny. One of the strengths of my eclectic musical history is that I never felt hamstrung by one form. Especially at the beginning, especially over the first maybe 10, 15 years, when he kind of tackled all kinds of different forms of music. Okay, he's known for his many duets, from Dottie West to Kim Carnes, who, let's face it, sounded like a female Kenny Rogers. Uh, he sang with Sheena Easton. They did uh, the Bob Seger song, We've Got Tonight. And of course, one of the greatest duets of all time, Islands in the Stream, a Bee Gees song, by the way, with Dolly Parton. If you get a chance to go to YouTube uh, and watch them do the song live, please, it's, uh, it's, it's a remarkable performance. Dolly and Kenny at their absolute best, and she did a very uh, heartfelt tribute to him after he died. Kenny Rogers was a pretty interesting performer. In the 1960s, he looked cool, almost hippie-ish. And the guy had this most likable personality. Tom, you saw him in concert, right? I saw him in concert about eight years ago, and he was not only a great performer, but he was funny, as in hilarious. And that happened because when he was a kid, he saw Ray Charles in concert, and Ray not only had people clapping during his songs, he had people laughing between them. That really stuck with young Kenny, and i got to tell you, he was a master of it. So, inspired by Ray Charles. Now, I wouldn't have called that, but Ray Charles inspired a lot of people. I mean, you think, would there have been a Joe Cocker? I mean, Van Morrison was totally inspired by him. Um, the list goes on and on. But also for Kenny, it was not only what a great musician and player Ray was, but also, of course, you know, what a wonderful entertainer he was. One of the funniest parts of his concerts is when he would recite the lyrics of his first big hit, Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In, a very hippie-esque hit from 1967. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Whenever he did that song, he would recite the lyrics, and it was always very funny. So other than that brief foray into hippie culture, 
Kenny had become very mainstream in his appeal, and his look and demeanor had a lot to do with that. But he also had a great ear for hit songs. So, in the hours following Kenny's death, I went through our archives and found a ton of Kenny clips from two eras. The first is from the early 70s, when he was still in Kenny Rogers in the first edition. These are great. They cover a lot of his late 60s and early 70s hits. The second batch of clips is from 1980, upon the release of Kenny's album Gideon, which had the hit Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer, a duet with the aforementioned Kim Carnes, who, by the way, co-wrote all of the songs on that album. Kenny talks about being a performer in these clips, also interacting with audiences, and boy, was he ever good at that, and even how to deal with massive success. Listen for the advice that he gave to his collaborator on so many songs, Dottie West. This is really in-depth, fascinating stuff. Okay, so let's get started. Kenny and a few others were in a band called the New Christie Minstrels, more of a folk band, and they had written a bunch of songs. But the people who owned the group, which is weird, how do you own a group, told them that they would not be allowed to record their songs, their new songs, as the New Christie Minstrels. So Kenny picks up the story from there. And it became apparent at that point, really, to the four of us, that if we were going to do anything creative in the business, that we couldn't do it working for someone else. So we decided to start our own group. And uh, on the strength of the fact that we already had 10 songs worked up, that was where we started. And we just, on July 10th of 1967, we gave notice to the Christies that... Uh, it's the check we had gotten the week before we were going to frame because that was going to be our last one. And so we went out on our own. And it was really kind of a, uh, a brave move because we had no idea. We went from excellent salaries with the Christies to nothing. And uh, we really scuffled for a long time. We, we went out and rehearsed and three weeks later did our first Mother's Brothers show. <laughs> it was a long, hard pull going. He got his start, of course, in the... Um New Christie Minstrels, which was a band that was part of the folk boom of the late 50s and early 60s that included Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, Ian and Sylvia, the rooftop singers, and uh, eventually, of course, people like Bob Dylan and, and Joan Baez as well. But he emerged from that group and uh, immediately took on another identity, and it was somewhat different. He calls it psychedelic, and the best example of that is a song called Just Dropped In, to see what condition my condition was in. On Just Dropped In, we were the first, to the best of my knowledge, to do that. We did the yeah, yeah, oh yeah. That was put through a Leslie speaker, which is an organ speaker, and it has the rotary cone so that it wavers. And you get, it sounds like, a, like an organ, and the voices were actually run through the organ speaker, and when they came out, they were wavy like that. And it was, it was a kind of a unique sound. I have never really been of the feeling that I had a good voice, but I think I have a very commercial voice, and I have a good ear for commercial songs. And uh, I found the song, Mickey Newberry wrote the song, and uh, who has, Mickey's kind of come into his own as an artist even just recently with Sunshine and a couple of other things that he's done, the American Trilogy. He wrote the song, I, I was raised with Mickey, and I'm the one that kind of got him into the business, and then after I heard him sing, tried to get him out of it, and only to find out that he's really going to be one of the best singers in the business. But to make a long story short, he wrote the song and played it for me when I was with the Christies. And then when we put this group together, we started looking for material, and I remembered the song. Mm -hmm. And I asked him about that one, and he let us do it, and that was our first big hit. One of the other big hits that the first edition had was uh, But You Know I Love You. And here he graciously credits the uh, songwriter, I'm glad to know. Right. This was a song that Mike Settle had written. He was one of the members of the group at the time. And 
what had happened is that Just Dropped In had come out, and everybody was thinking, hey, this is going to be another heavy group. You know, cream, vanilla fudge, strawberry alarm clock, you know, a lot of uh, groups that were into the what at that time was termed acid rock. And the one thing we did not want to do was to get labeled as a group that was predominantly fad-oriented. In other words, we did not want to get locked into an acid rock group because we felt that it was a fad, and when the fad died down, we had just as soon continue. So what we tried to do was change our direction a little bit. So we wanted a song. I have been, always been of the feeling that that a hit song has to have some kind of hook, something that people will remember. So when Mike Settle played me, But You Know I Love You, and it got to the bridge on the thing, that just, to me, it was a natural. And I think it's one of the the most intimately revealing songs about this business. I mean, it can make people really relate to this business of the being on the road, being in the hotel room, and the, the telephone calls, and this, that, and the other. And I think it was beautifully worded and beautifully put. Well, if his career could have gone to another level, it definitely did. With a song that uh, not everyone loved, but those that did really loved. And that's a song called Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town. And as far as finding the song and choosing to record it, he spreads the credit around a little bit more. I heard it on a Roger Miller album when we first put the group together. And again, in trying to find a song that fit what I feel is my style, Actually, I have to be really honest and tell you that my wife found the song. She brought me the song, and she said, I think this would be a good song for you to do. And the first time I heard it, I went, ooh, wait a minute, you know, because you're asking for trouble. And she said, well, you know, if you do it and nobody likes it, don't do it anymore. It's as simple as that. So I thought that was a pretty good sound theory. So uh, we worked it up, and we did it for a year, and it got fantastic response. And so we're in the process of doing the album, and in doing the album, we had uh, we needed one song, and we had 20 minutes left in the studio. So I suggested, I said, well, you know, we've been doing this song for a year. Why don't we kind of just throw this one in the album? And the producer said, well, I don't, you know, I don't really think you're going to get it played. And my feeling was very much like my wife's at this point. If nobody plays it, it doesn't matter. It fills up the album. So we put it on the album, and it was incredible. The day the album was released, we started getting calls on it, on that specific song out of the album. Yeah, it was controversial. Uh, and Kenny talks about... Uh the great reaction he got from the veterans. Immediately the song just became an, an instant success and we started getting letters of criticism and some acclaim and so forth. But to me the most interesting letter we got was a letter from Vietnam from a hospital ward with about 250 veterans' signatures on it, our, our wounded men. And their summarization of their letter basically was that they felt that for the first time in music that the war had been put on a one-to-one -one basis, and it showed a great deal of empathy for the individual because the real, the real sufferer, the real tragedy in war is the man who has lasting things that he has to live with, and particularly a person who's, if, I guess a paraplegic is the proper term, a, a person who basically had one time had been a healthy body and now has to live with the problems that were brought on by war. Uh, ironically, it was written about the Korean War as opposed to the Vietnam War. And Mel Tillis wrote the song, and... Uh, it was released, you know, as I said, on the Roger Miller album, and apparently the timing was not right. This was either prior to the Vietnam War, or at least prior to the public, you know, um, attention that had been brought to it. But the the song, to me, did exactly that. It made you sit there and look at this man face to face and say, "This is the tragedy of war." Now, this guy, we've listed all his attributes as a singer, as a performer, you know, his his great entertainer chops and everything else. But what else did he have? For for me. He had just a remarkable ear for the right song at the right time. Now, how do you follow up Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town? Well, he did it with a song called Reuben James. After Ruby, 
the hardest part about the record business is what do you follow a, a hit like that with? You know, because anything you do is going to be unimportant almost after that. So I had looked and I had listened to song after song after song, and, and nothing, everything kind of seemed to fall short after Ruby. And I was playing golf in a music industry tournament in L.A., and this guy comes up to me and he says, I've got a song for you to sing that will follow Ruby. And if he knew how many times I'd heard that that day, you know, and I said, yeah, well, fine, put it on tape for me and send it to me and I'll, you know, I'll put it in the basket with the rest of the stuff. But he, he insisted on walking along beside me while I'm playing golf and singing me the lyrics to this song. And after about the first, you know, set of lyrics, I realized that this was a beautifully written song. I mean, it, it did have the same basic feel and it was also socially oriented as far as comment about a black man who raised a white child. Not that I was looking for that, but I was looking for certain common denominators in hit records that I, you know, that you can't ignore. And uh, when he sang me the song or told me the lyrics, I said, I really would like to have a copy of that. So Alex Harvey, who wrote it, uh, sent me a copy of the of a demo and the thing, and I just went, I really believe that's the record to follow it with. So we came out with it, and it did very well. I love this. He's a great storyteller. I love this where he talks about the uh, the song Something's Burning that was originally written for Sammy Davis Jr. What? <laughs> I know. Go figure, right? Uh, but fortunately, Kenny was the man. And he tells the story of the heartbeat that runs throughout the song. Something's Burning. It's, it's interesting. We've had, you know, three different really big types of hits. Something's Burning was our biggest sales-wise in the States. It sold more records than Ruby did. Ruby sold more internationally. Something's Burning sold more in the States. And Just Dropped In was higher in the charts than all of them. So it's kind of a strange thing. But Something's Burning, Jimmy Bowen, who was producing us at the time, we were sitting sitting down trying to figure out which way to go because I did not want to get... Now we'd had three country records, and I didn't want to be labeled as a country group. So I said, we've got to find a new direction. Let's listen to material all day and all night if we have to, but let's find something that's unique and different. So Mac Davis, who plays golf with me all the time, sat down at Jimmy Bowen's house and Mac was playing me some songs and he said here's one I wrote for Sammy Davis Jr. and he played Something's Burning and he did it the heartbeat thing he did on the guitar with his finger and it was such a nice sound and the minute he started I, I told Jimmy I said ooh I would have, I would love to get my hands on that and he said well I've done it for Sam, I've written the song for Sammy Davis Jr. he was supposed to have recorded it they haven't really confirmed it but I, I'm sure he's going to do it and this that and the other and so I said well look if nothing comes of it let me know so about two or three days later he called back and said I don't I can't seem to get a definite answer from them about sent from Sammy, so if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. And I told Jimmy the only way I would do it is if we could use a live heartbeat in the thing, which we did. We listened. I can't tell you how many heartbeats we listened to. And it's, it's amazing how many different types of heartbeats there are. Because the funny thing is I hear it with the, uh, with the heart, with the emphasis on the second beat, like boom, boom, dun, dun. And heartbeats have it the other way around. Dun, dun, dun. And it's really strange, so we had to turn the tape around. Right there. But it's really, it is a real heartbeat. But it's a, it was an interesting record to do, and it was a fun record to do. And the record just kind of took its own course. I think we reshaped it a little bit from the way it was originally written, but it, the, the ending is what I enjoyed doing most because it really gets into that big throbbing thing at the end, which is beautiful. And the heartbeat goes through the entire thing. Part two um, of our interview is coming up, and um, this is uh, from around 1980, uh, Kenny was an established star at that point, of course. He had an album out called Gideon. And um, he talks he talks actually very philosophically uh, in these next couple of clips, uh, particularly about the, his theory of prolonged success. The whole 
top end of the goal was to get where we are now. So the question is, what do you do from here? And I think the truth is that there are two phases to any successful artist's career. And the first phase is where the song makes the artist, to where you take a hit song that no matter who does it, and it's going to be a hit. And the second phase is where the artist gets so hot that no matter what song he does, it becomes a hit. And I think the trick is to never get to phase two if you want any longevity, because the idea is if you always start with a hit song, then you can just go forever. I mean, if you can consistently find those hit songs. The minute you start draining your success by using it, then that's when you start limiting your length of time. So we're toying around. We've just found, I've just cut a new album, which uh, will not be released for some time now, but it's, uh, you know, you, you have to be way ahead. The lead time on albums is, is pretty significant. And I'm really excited about some of the songs that we found. So I, I think we're still successfully in phase one. We're still finding hit songs. He also has, uh, I think, a way of melding his thoughts about being an entertainer with his thoughts about being a human. And you're going to get a philosophy of life that makes, I think, a lot of good sense. It's like Dottie and I were up for a Grammy one year, and Dottie's the kind that gets very emotional and very excited about all these things, and she really gets, boy, if we can win, if we can win. And I said, Dottie, one of the tricks that you've got to learn in this business to survive, and I mean this, is that you've got to learn to take some of the top off, to not enjoy it quite so much, because that way the depressions are not as bad when it's over. So if you can kind of stay in a, in a, in a mid-range, you can still enjoy it and have a great time. But I can honestly tell you, or um, to the best of my recollection, that in my entire life, I have never, ever been depressed because I'm just a very positive person. And I don't take the highs, I don't ride the crest with such exuberance because the minute you do that, the lows are twice as low. So I, I've learned that, and maybe it's a defense mechanism, but it works for me. I'm a very happy person. I'm very content with my life. And the only single thing in my life I would change is maybe a little more time off. But at the same time, I really have control over that. If I really wanted it, I could have time off. Kenny was a thoughtful guy, as this clip will reveal. You know, that I always equate this, this whole business of show business to mountain climbing. That, you know, if you don't enjoy the climb, how important can the top be? You know, and I mean, you can be dropped off on the top of a mountain from a helicopter, and it's, very, it's a beautiful sight, but you haven't done anything. You know, and by the same analogy, you have to live. If you start an analogy, you have to live by it. You also can't live on top of the mountain. You've got to come down sooner or later. And I, like everybody else, I mean, there's, there's two different positions, two different things that happen in life and two different ways to approach it. One is the possibility. The other is the probability. The possibility is, yeah, I'll be the exception. I'll be able to hang around 25 or 30 more years if I want to and sing songs and make a good living at it. Probability is I won't. I'll be like everybody else. I'll have three years at the top. Somebody else will come along and take my place. The trick is to be prepared for it so that it doesn't bother you. You know, and you invest yourself in such a way that you're secure emotionally and financially. And the trick is while you're at the top, you find new things to interest you so that when it's over, it doesn't come as a tremendous shock to you. Oh, man, he's so likable in these clips. Okay, so at the end of the 70s, early 80s, Kenny had the habit of handing out a whole bunch of tambourines to the audience. He explains why he did that and why it was important. Oh, yeah, I give about, uh, throughout the course of the year, I'll give $2,000 worth of tambourines away. I give away about four or five, depending on how the place is laid out, because I try to spread them out throughout the front rows so that uh, it, it does two things. That little tambourine thing breaks the barrier between the audience and the, and the person on stage 
and it also gets them involved and it gives me a reason to talk to the people because my the biggest thrill I get is doing a show I, I think the key to a good show is when people feel like they're getting something special that hasn't happened ever before and while the tambourines themselves don't do that sometimes the interplay the dialogue back and forth has never happened before and uh, that's what you look for that spontaneity that little something so I'm looking for vehicles to communicate with the people and of course the story behind the great song Lucille I didn't write the song it was written by Roger Bowling and Hal Bynum and uh, my understanding was that it was a story that they either heard or were witness to or something or the situation you know all songs really are just situations brought to life and um, I don't know that it was about someone that they knew but it seems to me like that it supposedly did take place in this bar in Toledo this whole enactment of this thing because I noticed in reading some material about you that your own mother's name is Lucille oh yeah she my mother is almost 70 years old now and it's, it took me six months to convince her that I didn't write the song about her and she, I kept saying, first of all, I didn't write the song. And secondly, if I had, I wouldn't have written it about you. And she said, well, you know, I saw you do it on the Merv Griffin show. You must have written it. She can't separate the two. Once I do it on TV, she thinks I wrote it, you know. But uh, she, it made her an instant celebrity in Crockett, Texas. She gets letters from all over the world, people saying, you know, how's Lucille doing? And, you know, and she loves it. And I think to me that's one of the real nice byproducts of the record is that it gave her a sense of identification. And it gave her, you know, something that she genuinely enjoys, you know. There you go, Kenny Rogers from the early 70s and early 80s, as we pay tribute to him on Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. We'll talk to you soon.